Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, I guess I guess we're doing a series here. Um, from one show to the other, there's a continuity. I think you may remember, I think I may remember last week, there was an item about a priest who had uh, done the baptism ceremony wrong for more than two decades. He said, we baptize instead of I baptize, and so all of those baptisms uh, were deemed um, null and void by the church, and and as well all other rites of the church, the Catholic church, that followed upon that baptism, your marriages, your confirmations, etc. This week, uh, not quite as widespread a phenomenon, but um, maybe of a piece, you decide, a Church of England vicar who stripped down to his underwear to carry out a baptism before traveling to Liverpool has been fired. Reverend Clive Evans carried out the baptism in his underwear before traveling to Liverpool for a holiday with his wife. Church of England Tribunal ruled that his misconduct was serious and barred him from holding office for six months. Oh, okay. It's not that serious. You know, you can, you can just sit around in your shorts for six months not performing baptisms, I guess, is the choice there. The Diocese of Herefordshire apologized unreservedly to those affected by his behavior while he was the vicar of Bromyard and Spoke, sorry, Stoke Lacey in Herefordshire. Herefordshire. A full report has now been published by the Church of England describing how Reverend Evans, or Reverend Evidence, as Richard Nixon once would have put it, was filmed, filmed now, we learn, carrying out the baptism in front of a shocked family. He told the panel the baptism was not convenient for him because he was due to go on the holiday with his wife, vacation. After finishing his breakfast, he attended the house, uh, a couple of years ago in April, and performed a full immersion baptism in a bath while wearing only his boxer shorts. He claimed he stripped down to his boxer shorts. Now, this is the best reason ever, because he didn't want to get wet. Recalling the incident, one family member said, quote, Clive then started to remove his shirt, which I thought was fair enough, seeing as he didn't want to get it wet. However, when he started taking his shorts off, I was shocked and thought to myself, why is he undressing completely in front of my mother, my sister, and I? Unquote. The report found that although we accept that the family did not indicate unhappiness about his state of undress, and indeed only person two ever expressed reservations about it, the panelists concluded that no agreement was reached with the family to his taking off his clothes, leaving only his boxer shorts. The panel considers that underwear is intimate apparel. It is qualitatively different to and has different associations from other forms of clothing or even of swimwear. As such, there is a loss of dignity by stripping down to underwear in the circumstances in which it occurred, which is inherently inappropriate and unbecoming. Unquote. The panel that uh, considered, oh, uh, two incidents of touching without consent were also considered by the panel. The first incident happened when a child was climbing out of Mr. Evans, the former reverend, his car in February. Three years ago, he said to have touched the child on the bottom. 
the second, the tribunal panel said, more likely than not took place as he hugged someone after a church service in March two years ago. Sorry, three years ago. He was found to have touched the woman on the bottom with a, quote, double pat, unquote. He was initially suspended from all duties April 2019 before he was fired from roles at the uh, church. Spokesperson for the Church of England released a statement earlier this month. It was found that uh, his conduct was unbecoming to the office of a clergy person. We commend the bravery of those who brought these allegations forward and acknowledge how difficult this would have been. We apologize unreservedly to them for what has happened and for what they've experienced. As a diocese, we take the safety and well-being of everyone very seriously and have robust safeguarding procedures in place. The Bishop of Hereford said the behavior of Reverend Evans is completely unacceptable, and we will be keeping all those affected by this case in our prayers, unquote. That settles that. Hello, welcome to the show. Place. 
Santa Monica, California, the home of the homeless. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. There'll be more news of the godly, even more. Nothing more about funky baptisms, though. For today, we uh, await the, the next week's developments. But now... He's not a general. He commands no troops. He's not an inspector. He peeks at no stoops. He's an inspector. General. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, this won't come as any news to uh, those of us who live full or part-time in New Orleans, but it's nice to have it on the record, the public record. Analysis of NOLA, that's New Orleans, Louisiana, 311 pothole data revealed that the city of New Orleans' response to pothole-related service requests was significantly slower than that of other metropolitan areas around the country. That's according to the New Orleans Office of Inspector General. This just in. (laughs) According to the data, on average, the Department of Public Works took 204 days to resolve service requests to repair potholes. Other service requests were left pending indefinitely. So the potholes are more important. The average time for pending requests at the time of the inspection by the Office of Inspector General, 348 days, almost a year. Time to think about it. Consider your request. Think about whether you really wanted to request some service whether those potholes really bothered you. The analysis concluded the city did not have defined goals or performance measures for completing pothole repairs within a specified number of days. You know, like a target kind of a thing. The OIG also found that the Department of Public Works process was 
not completely transparent for duplicate service requests, including requests that were ultimately referred to external agencies. Citizens could reportedly no longer track service requests in the 311 system once the request was marked duplicate or referred. To resolve these issues, the Office of Inspector General recommended Department of Public Works adopt a formal policy. Imagine that. With goals and performance measures to repair potholes within a specified amount of time. This is New Orleans we're talking about. The OIG said the time period for repairs should be on the unique climate, characteristics, and resources of the city. Obviously, it's already been adjusted for the characteristics. In the days, in the days leading up to the January 6, 2021 siege of the U.S. Capitol, officials inside the Department of Homeland Security were feeling anxious when in the Department's Office of Intelligence and Analysis, the sole component of the federal government authorized to disseminate threat information to state and local law enforcement agencies, analysts had watched as maps of the Capitol were circulated online amid talk of hanging Democrats, murdering protesters, and dying in a blaze of glory. The Homeland Security officials warned each other to be vigilant going to and from work as they stopped the steel rally approached, expecting violence. Some planned to stay home when the day finally came, despite the measures they planned to take for their own safety, however, and the abundant evidence that January 6th was a powder keg waiting to blow, this lingo from The Intercept, the federal office responsible for warning the rest of the government about dangerous events decided to keep its concerns to itself. Those are the findings of a DHS Office of Inspector General report released this week that calls for essential changes to intelligence and analysis. The department's troubled intel office. The 50-page report documents how the various divisions of INA, from open-source intelligence collectors to its counterterrorism wing to officials posted at fusion centers around the country, repeatedly encountered evidence of preparations for violence at the Capitol, but chose not to report that information to a wider audience. It's just us. As early as December 21, 2020, according to the report, INA officials internally circulated information about an individual describing plans to kill protesters by the dozens. I guess it's easier that way. Calls to bring weapons to Washington, D.C., an increase in weapons brandished by individuals already in the Capitol, and threats of violence against ideological adversaries, law enforcement agents, and government officials. None of that information made it outside the office prior to January 6th. While one I and A official did submit information about the various threats to be approved for a report on January 5, according to the Inspector General, that release was not approved and disseminated until two days after the siege, at which point four people who were at the event were dead, including one shot by a Capitol Police officer. Quote, in the weeks before the events at the Capitol, INA identified specific open-source threat information related to January 6th, but did not issue any intelligence products about these threats until January 8th. On several occasions leading up to January 6th, collectors, that's inside the INA division, messaged each other about the threats they discovered online. 
unquote. The inspector general pointed out two explanations for uh, the division's inaction. A rushed hiring push the year before that put inexperienced and untrained officials on the job, and public backlash following the office's targeting of journalists who covered the George Floyd protests in 2020. The report is the latest blow to INA, which has long been the subject of criticism for its troubled relationship to constitutionally protected protest activities, and among those who see the office established in the wake of 9-11 as unnecessarily duplicative in a world where the FBI already exists. News of Inspectors General, ladies and gentlemen. Public service of this broadcast. And now, use of the Olympic movement. Produced by Jim Ebersall III. You ever get the feeling that there just aren't enough sports in the Olympics? Me too. The World Dance Sport Federation, the WDSF, has formed a committee pushing towards breakings inclusion in the LA 2028 Olympic Games. Breaking, we know as breakdancing. It's already included on the program for Paris 2024. Did you know that? Breaking is not a, a guaranteed a spot at Los Angeles 2028 after not being included in the initial 28 sports for the Games in six years. It has established a committee consisting of representatives from the United States, France, and Australia to raise the sports value in media, demographic, and commercial sectors to improve its chance of being a more permanent fixture at the Games. Discussions are ongoing between Dance Sport Australia Limited and the Organizing Committee of Brisbane 2032 as well. I think they're, they're not just breakdancing, they're thinking ahead. The WDSF has and will continue to advocate for the inclusion of breaking at LA 28, says President of the WDSF, Sean Tay. Not Sean Tay. Sean Tay. The United States is the birthplace of breaking. It would be a dream come true for so many to see it added to the sport program for the Olympics in Los Angeles. The WDSF is ready, willing, and able to help make it a reality. Unquote Sean Tay. Not Sean Tay. Sean Tay. Breaking, commonly known as breakdancing, originated in the... This is now an explanation from InsideTheGames.biz... Originally known as, commonly known as breakdancing, originated in African-American and Puerto Rican communities in New York City in the 1970s and is a form of street dancing. It was included in the Paris 2024 program as one of four additional sports proposed by the organizing committee, along with sport climbing, skateboarding, and surfing in Paris. Breaking, ladies and gentlemen. That's actually, actually you, you could consider that breaking news. Because it's the Olympics. It's a movement. 
And we all need one. Every day. Don't you wish what you did in the street was getting into the Olympics? Yeah, me too. Now, some news of our friend the Atom. And here we uh, bump up against the big story of the week. Anxious consumers concerned over nuclear safety risks rising from Russia's invasion of Ukraine are pushing up prices for iodine and potassium iodide pills. Who says? The Australian Financial Review is who. Costs for the tablets, which help protect the thyroid from radioactive chemicals, have surged in recent weeks after the attack. That's now in its third week. Russian shelling caused a, a fire at a building on the site of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, Europe's biggest such facilities. The country's forces have destroyed an atomic physics lab under international safeguards in Ukraine's second-largest city. And nuclear waste facilities in Kyiv were also damaged during the first week of the war. And uh, President Putin has set his nuclear arsenal on a special regime of high-alert combat duty, which translates to, wake up! Stop sleeping at the thing. But the top U.S. spy chief has said the Russian uh, president's public warnings about putting his atomic forces on higher alert are mostly symbolic, No changes in the country's nuclear posture have been seen. Still, the fighting in Ukraine has raised fears of a radioactive incident, pushing consumers to rush for protection. One bottle of 180 potassium iodide iodide pills now costs almost $70 from third-party sellers on Amazon, compared with just $30 at the beginning of the year. That's according to a price-tracking site amusingly called CamelCamelCamel.com. Another from Now Foods is priced at $29, up from about 20 late last year. Demand is most intense in Europe, with Finland seeing a more than 100-fold increase in demand, Norway facing supply shortages after 90,000 packets were sold last week alone. In the U.S., Google searches for desiodine help in nuclear war have risen 1,150% over the past seven days. Potassium iodide, since you asked, is a salt of stable iodine which is needed by the body to produce thyroid hormones. Most of the iodine that people have in their bodies comes from the food that we eat. However, radioactive iodine can be released into the air after a nuclear event and inhaled into the lungs and then absorbed by the thyroid. Potassium iodide and iodine supplements work by blocking radioactive iodine from entering the thyroid. But, now be careful, don't forget I told you this, Centers for Disease Control, I know, but still, says that people should only take potassium iodide on the advice of public health or emergency management officials taking a stronger dose than recommended or more often than suggested can result in severe illness or death. And, uh, of course, while I was reading that side effect to you, we were um, playing video of uh, people frolicking in the snow or at the lake. That's what we do when side effects are read, right? Just to distract you from it. 
Japan's uh, also on the nuke subject. Japan's, Japan's Supreme Court upheld an order for TEPCO to pay damages of $12 million to about 3,700 people whose lives were devastated by the Fuk disaster. That's the first decision of its kind. This is from the insurancejournal.com. The average uh, payout, according to the uh, NHK, the public broadcasting outlet in Japan, average payout is uh, about 3,290 person for each plaintiff covered by three class action lawsuits, the first to be finalized. There are more than 30 in process. The decision came as the court rejected an appeal by TEPCO and ruled it negligent in taking preventive measures against a tsunami or a tsunami of that size. The court withheld a verdict on the role of the government, which is also a defendant in the lawsuits, and will hold a hearing next month to rule on its culpability, according to the broadcaster. Lower courts have split over the extent of the government's responsibility in foreseeing the disaster. You know, it's earthquake territory there. So tsunamis, you know, they could happen. And ordering steps by TEPCO to prevent it. By, what, building it somewhere else, I guess. Our friend the atom. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, sir, you. Microplastics. Think about it. Will you think about it? Yes, I will. An estimated 242 million metric tons of plastic waste is generated globally every year, polluting cities and clogging oceans. This according to Agence France Presse. Ah, the French. Yes. Most plastic advanced recycling plants in the United States aren't actually recycling plastic, according to Agence France Press, instead converting it into a dirty fuel while producing toxic waste in low-income communities. That's um, a report by a leading environmental group this week. Advanced recycling, also known as chemical recycling, is a relatively new technique touted by industry groups. It breaks plastic down to its molecular building blocks. Tom? Molecular building blocks. Close. It is said to be able to recapture more than traditional mechanical recycling. Recycling that involves chopping plastic up and processing it into pellets to make new products. But now a research report by the National Resources Defense Council, it's a nonprofit that has helped influence key legislation since it was founded in 1970, accuses the plastics industry of misleading the public through greenwashing. There's been a lot of energy and enthusiasm about this idea of chemical recycling as a potential part of the solution for the plastic waste crisis, says a senior scientist at the NRDC. We felt it was very important to understand what are these technologies actually doing, she asks rhetorically. The NRDC found that hundreds of announced plants, out, out of them, just eight were either operational or soon to be operational, based on official federal and state documents. These aren't the plants you want to um, be basing your fake meat on. No, these are actually manufacturing plants. Five of the eight were engaged in plastic-to-fuel conversion to create a new low-grade fuel. One was converting carpets to nylon. 
We always need that. And two are converting plastic to chemical components. The report said that producing fuel from plastic waste does not qualify as recycling under international definitions and that it creates harmful air pollution and greenhouse gases when burned. So there you are, back again. One of the plastic to chemical plants run by the company Agilix in Oregon theoretically takes waste polystyrene and converts it into styrene, which can then be used to make new polystyrene. Is styrene enough yet? But according to the company's own figures, it is shipping hundreds of thousands of pounds of styrene oil to be burned for energy rather than be converted back into plastic. It's not clear why the company would uh, go through the wasteful and inefficient process of converting polystyrene to styrene only to then burn the styrene. Only then, although one potential reason is that the styrene produced is very low-quality styrene. The plant also generated nearly 500,000 pounds of hazardous waste in 2019, sending it most of it off-site to be burned. Reach for comment, Angelix told Agence France Press, quote, We share the view that the world has a plastic waste problem, that not enough plastic is recycled, that too many plastics end up in landfills and our oceans, and that many types of plastics are not today being recycled into useful products. These are the issues that Agilix is working to solve. Unquote. They added that the amount of hazardous waste produced by chemical recycling was not significant. The NRDC found that six of the facilities are in communities that are disproportionately black or brown, five in communities where a disproportionate percentage of households have an income below $25,000. Despite being a leading producer of plastic waste, the United States recycles just 8.7% of it. What we need is to focus on solutions that address the root of the problem. We need less plastic, period, says um, one of the scientists involved, Vina Sigla, at the NRDC. She calls for bans on single-use items. Just one word, microplastics. Last rays of sunlight die, full moon begins to rise, reflected in your eyes. I can't believe this is happening. You make the motor in me flutter and wow. The crowd was gathering. The clock struck five and ten. My happy tears were descending. I can't believe this is happening You make the murder in me Flutter and wow Flutter and wow Flutter and 
From Santa Monica, this is Le Show, and now... Well, there's this craze, supposedly, for NFTs, non-fungible tokens, judging solely by the announcements of dozens of fashion brands getting into them. One might think consumers are clamoring for the product. Not everyone is on board with the concept, according to Glossy.co, a fashion website. And in January, the direct-to-consumer underwear brand... Me Undies posted on Twitter that it had joined the Bored Ape Yacht Club 
an NFT collection and community centered on slight variations of the same image of an ape. <laughs> Celebrities like Jimmy Fallon and Paris Hilton own Bored Ape N- NFTs. The post included an image of Me Undies NFT, an ape with a big smile wearing a hat with the brand's logo on it. The company also changed its Twitter profile picture to the image of the ape. The reaction the company received was less than positive. Within a few hours, the tweet had more than 1,000 responses, 263 retweets. The majority were highly critical of the decision to get into NFTs, some posts featuring anti-NFT memes and pledges not to shop with MeUndies any longer, amassed thousands of likes. Quote, the irony of a company that boasts about their use of planet-friendly materials joining in on a scam that uses a disgusting amount of wasted energy to mint pretend money is too much for me, one comment said. This is a huge disappointment. I cannot support this. I will be canceling my subscription, said another. The top reply under the tweet is a detailed guide on how to cancel a MeUndies subscription. Across industries, NFTs are a controversial subject. Their environmental impact has been criticized by climate activists. Their economic structure has been compared to a pyramid scheme by analysts. In gaming, they've been met with frequent backlash. Multiple gaming companies canceled their NFT plans after public backlash from their fans. Social platforms ArtStation and Discord also canceled NFT plans after harsh reactions from their users, and the film production company Legendary, which had planned NFTs to promote the release of Dune, did the same. Negative responses these companies received from their communities centered on NFTs' environmental impact, the rampant use of stolen artwork in NFTs, and the predatory economic underpinnings of the NFT ecosystem. Me Undies has been silent on the whole deal since the tweet was first posted. The company changed its Twitter profile picture back from the NFT image to its company logo and deleted a response defending the plan shortly after it was first posted. Me Undies has not posted anything on Twitter since the NFT post. The company did not respond to request for comment for this story. Chinese driverless car company Pony.ai has scored an unwanted first. It's recalled some versions of its AI software from U.S. roads after admitting defaults. This is recalls of unsafe products are common in the auto industry. This is the f- this is the uh, first ever such action, so it's thought, to be f- performed on self-driving software. Pony.ai, in case you were wondering, was founded in. 2016 by Chinese developers who had worked in the States. It quickly attracted plenty of investment, won permits to conduct on-road tests of its self-driving tech in California and China. China! The company even operated the U.S. first robo-taxi service and has moved to offer automated delivery services using 10 Hyundai Konas on California roads, according to the register. Toyota has invested $400 million in the company, most potent endorsement an automotive company can receive given the Japanese 
firm status as the planet's most prolific automaker. But Pony.ai hit a big speed bump when one of its cars took out some street signs last October. California's Department of Motor Vehicles withdrew the company's permit to operate robocars last December. Trial ceased as a result of that action. Now the company has lodged a filing with the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration in which it agrees to call recall certain versions of its software because, you'll never guess, they're unsafe. Deputy Administrator Dr. Stephen Cliff welcomed the decision as a sign that agency applies the same rigor to AI that it brings to other new automotive tech. Recall means three of Pony.ai's 10 U.S.-based vehicles will not return to the nation's roads and will probably complicate its efforts to sell a recently announced self-driving module it built on NVIDIA tech. The company maintains the October 2021 incident is the only time one of its robocars has had such an accident. Pony.ai's recall may be a first. Tesla has already rolled back a software update to its auto-autos after it created more problems than it fixed. And this on the subject of right to repair your digital devices, even if they're large farm vehicles. From the register, 12 farm labor advocacy and repair groups filed a complaint last week with the U.S. FTC, Federal Trade Commission to you and me, claiming that agricultural equipment maker Deer and Company has unlawfully refused to provide the software and technical data necessary to repair its machinery. The groups include the National Farmers Union, Farmers Union in various states, the U.S. Public Interest Research Group, and the Digital Right to Repair Coalition. They contend Deere and Company owns over 50% of the agricultural machinery market in the U.S. and has deliberately restricted access to its diagnostic software and other information necessary to repair its products. That would be in violation of the Sherman Act and statutes covering unfair and deceptive trade practices. They're asking the FTC to intervene by putting an end to these practices. Says the attorney for the farm and repair groups, quote, for many farmers and ranchers, they effectively have no choice but to purchase their equipment from Deere. Not satisfied with dominating the market for equipment, Deere has sought to leverage its power in that market to monopolize the market for repairs of that equipment, unquote. It's part of a broader pushback against digital lock protections built into the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Go many, go back many years. Initially, the province of cyber liberties activists, digital repair concerns have now come to the attention of lawmakers in the U.S., the U.K., and Europe. In January, Deere was hit with two lawsuits, one in Illinois with the other in Alabama, over the company's re- repair restrictions and President Biden voiced support for repair rights. In February, U.S. lawmakers in both houses of Congress introduced separate bills to guarantee the right to repair. When states began to consider right to repair legislation way back in 2018, Deere, through an affiliated trade organization, said by January 1, 2021, it would provide tools through authorized dealers 
to empower farmers and ranchers to perform basic service maintenance and repairs on their equipment. 2021 has come and gone without this commitment being met. Stead Deer and Company provides repair information only if farmers and ranchers pay thousands of dollars up front for a service called Customer's Service Advisor, which still does not enable them to perform common repairs on their own. Citing this misrepresentation, the complaint asks the FTC to intervene. The FTC filing also suggests a rationale for Deer's behavior. It alleges that the repair business is three to six times more profitable than selling the agricultural machinery to begin with. Can't blame them. So join them. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the Apologies of the Week. Northern Ireland lawmakers fell silent this week as they remembered victims and survivors of decades of institutional abuse in children's homes, offering them a formal public apology. For your inquiry, which published its final report five years ago, found widespread mistreatment of children in state and church-run institutions across Northern Ireland. One of its recommendations was a formal apology for the physical, sexual, and emotional abuse, abuse the children suffered, which the devolved assembly in Belfast heard was long overdue. Education Minister Michelle McElveen told survivors, about 80 of whom were in the public gallery, they had been failed by the authorities. Quote, we're sorry the state failed to protect you from abuse. We're sorry that the state did not protect you from those who abused their power. We're sorry you were not believed. The state has listened to you, and the state believes you, and we are truly sorry. And there were apologies given by representatives of the four other main political parties in Northern Ireland. Deadline Salt Lake City calling it one of the largest Ponzi schemes in Utah history. Federal judge this week sentenced the mastermind of the scam to 19 years in prison, Galen Rust. Surrendering, pleaded guilty in December to three charges of, of running a $200 million silver trading scheme, two counts of fraud, and one money laundering count. This week, he apologized to his victims and to his family. According to court documents beginning in at least 2008, Rust, who operated Rust Rare Coin with his family, induced investors to put money towards silver trading. Money was going to be used to buy physical silver that was going to be stored at the warehouse, said an attorney representing some of his investors. It turned out none of that was true. He was a fraud. It was all smokes and mirrors. 568 victims, now unable to retire, some unable to make mortgage payments, Judge Ted Stewart noted these impacts on victims in issuing Rust the 19-year sentence. The assistant U.S. attorney who prosecuted him says it's the longest fraud sentence ever issued by a judge in Utah's federal district. There was no silver, Strain said. There was no trading. There was no program. The judge ordered Rust to repay $153 million. Seems unlikely he'll be even able to pay a fraction of that. But he said he was sorry. That's almost as good as the $153 million, don't you think? 
The CEO of Disney said Friday the company is ceasing its political donations in Florida due to the state's so-called Don't Say Gay bill, and he apologized for the company's previous silence on the issue. Quote, You needed me to be a stronger ally in a fight for equal rights, and I let you down, said Bob Chick Bob Peck in a statement to colleagues in the LBGTQ plus community. I am sorry. JPEG and the Walt Disney Company faced pressure for not publicly opposing the parental rights in education bill in Florida. The legislation, which was passed this week, forbids instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity in public schools, kindergarten through third grade. It's been dubbed the Don't Say Gay Bill and criticized by some who believe the bill could do harm to already marginalized populations. Disney was targeted by activists after it was discovered the company provided financial support for some of the bill's backers in the state legislature. Said JPEG, I missed the mark on this in this case, but I'm an ally you can count on, and I will be an outspoken champion for the protections, visibility, and opportunity you deserve. Unquote. A Georgia man, Dateline Atlanta, was sentenced this week to two years of probation and 60 hours community service for his role in the insurrectionist riots at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. Verdon of Buford told a federal judge, quote, I made a huge mistake, unquote, that day and apologized in a brief statement. Quote, I'm sorry to my family, the court, and you and the justice system. I made the mistake. Just trying to move on, unquote. Judge declined to give Nally any prison time, feeling his role in, the, role in the riots, in which the government did not present any evidence of his assaulting officers or damaging property, was, quote, less egregious than other cases she had heard. She described that his trespassing at the Capitol as, quote, an unusual event in his otherwise law-abiding record. He was also ordered to pay a $500 restitution fee to the Capitol architect for the general damage done that day in lieu of a fine, which the judge said he would be unable to pay. Nally pleaded guilty a couple months ago to misdemeanor offense of entering and remaining in a restricted building or grounds. He's the third to be sentenced in the cases. Cleveland Meredith Jr. received two years in prison. Dublin Thompson got almost four years in prison. Judge asked Nally's attorney during Thursday's hearing if he'd learned his lesson. The attorney responded, Oh my goodness, in so many ways. Over time, the judge said he exhibited significant regret, accepted responsibility for his actions, and was cooperative with the legal process. What a good boy! Deadline Ann Arbor, Michigan, making his first public appearance in nearly four weeks. Jawan Howard said he spent his five-game suspension reflecting on how he could become a better person and coach. Speaking at a press conference, the Michigan men's basketball coach acknowledged the post-game altercation against Wisconsin was not the right way of how I should carry myself as a head coach at a fine institution like the University of Michigan. I was truly upset with myself. 
During that two weeks, I got a chance to do some soul-searching to evaluate how I can get better. During that time, I reflected on the moment at Wisconsin, but then how I can be better as a best version of myself, as a head coach here, better as a person, and better as a coach. I went out and I sought therapy. This is not the first time and it won't be the last time because I want to be a better person. I want to be a better coach. I'll take full responsibility and I'm sorry. I hurt a lot of people. I hurt my family. I hurt my players and their families. I hurt my staff. I hurt the Michigan family, the Michigan alumni base. But most importantly, I want to take time to apologize again. I want to, take, I want to apologize to the assistant coach at Wisconsin because he deserves an apology. Hopefully someday in person I'll get the opportunity to walk up to the man and apologize to him. Look him in the eye. Look him in the face. and Let him know that I'm sorry. There was growth I've learned during the process, and I will continue to keep learning. Unquote. He was reinstated by the Michigan University following the five-game suspension, part of his punishment for his role in an altercation following a Wisconsin game in mid-February. He swatted at the Michigan, sorry, at the Wisconsin assistant coach following a tense conversation with the Badgers coach in the handshake line following the game. The ensuing melee also resulted in punishments for two Michigan players and a Wisconsin player. Howard was also fined $40,000, the largest disciplinary fine in Big Ten history. Global energy giant Shell has apologized for its past purchases of Russian petroleum products. It's agreed to phase out all involvement with the country's oil and gas industry, which accounts for about a tenth of global oil supply. Stunning move from one of the world's largest oil companies deepens a global private sector embargo that has isolated Russia's economy over the past week and a half. Russia's petroleum exports have already diminished since it launched its attack on Ukraine. International shipping firms are shying away from Russian purchases. Shell has already suspended its operations there, along with BP and ExxonMobil. <laughs> and Deadline Spokane, Washington. The LaConnor School District has issued a formal apology to a high school in Cooley Dam. That's a community, not the actual dam. After one of its players was subjected to racial slurs during a girls' basketball game last week during a state tournament game. I'm terribly sorry that one of our students was making loud monkey-like sounds during a tribal student's free throws, said LaConnor Superintendent Will Nelson. In an effort to empathize with the affected parties, Nelson referred to his own ethnic background as an enrolled member of the Blackfeet tribe. There's only two tribal superintendents in Washington state that I'm aware of. I'm also committed to a district without racism and a district with equitable outcomes and inclusive thinking, he wrote in his letter. We are deeply sorry for the harm and hurt this tribal student experienced, unquote. There has not been any indication if LaConnor School District will face any reprimanding. We'll keep you posted. And I said there'd be another new item of the godly. Former priest for the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend, Indiana, who was arrested on sex crime charges, will spend no time behind bars. 
special judge accepted a plea agreement for David Hunnick. The agreement calls for him to spend 180 days on home detention and a year and a half on probation. And he's going to have to complete a substance abuse assessment. He was accused of inviting two young women, 17 and 19 at the time, to his home and giving them alcohol before assaulting them on two different occasions. His wrists are hurting. The Apologies of the Week and News of the Godly, a copyrighted feature each one of this program. Well, that's going to be it. And by it, I mean the end of this week's broadcast and podcast. Next week, one more on these radio stations at the same time and on your audio device whenever you want it. And it would be just like getting those planes out of Poland and into uh, Ukraine. Agree to join with me then, would you already? Thank you very much. Uh huh. A tip of the show shall Poe to the San Diego desk, to Pam Halstead, and to Thomas Walsh at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's program. The email address for this broadcast, your chance to get Cars I Talk t shirts. How can you resist? And the playlist of the music heard here on all on harryshearer.com, along with a lot of other stuff to look at and listen to. and just help you get some up, you know, much needed sleep. And I'm on Twitter at the Harry Sheriff. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans' flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the home of the homeless.